0: Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I'm going to explore some history of the town of New Buffalo which is located in the southwest corner of Berrien County. It is the last town that you will see in that corner of the state if you head down US-12 or I-94 heading into Indiana. New Buffalo was built where the Galen River empties into Lake Michigan and it has a fascinating history that all started with a shipwreck so stick around. So the population of New Buffalo, according to the 2010 census, was about 1,883 people, which consisted of 881 households and 497 families living in the city. And the median age of the city's resident is 48.4 years of age, with about 17.3% of the residents being under the age of 18. And of course, there's a lot of other statistics about the town and the demographics, but you get the idea. It's kind of a small community on the southwest corner of Berrien County. Now, New Buffalo has a wonderful history page on their website for the New Buffalo Township. And it describes the city as the gateway of Michigan, which makes a lot of sense if you understand some of the early pioneer days of travel from Michigan going into Chicago and vice versa. So I'm going to read you the historical account that they have here because it makes for a wonderful story. And they take the timeline of the area of New Buffalo all the way from the Ice Age all the way up to present time. So let me read you this here. When the last ice age ended, the receding glaciers left the enormous gouges that filled to become the Great Lakes. Glacial and fluvial disposition created the inland areas where dunes along the shore were left by retreating shorelines. In historic times, the southeast corner of Lake Michigan contained alternating wetlands and forests of beach oak, and maple. In 1675, Father Jacques Marquette was the first European explorer coming down the St. Joseph River, which he called the River of the Miamis after the Indian tribe living along its banks. Four years later, another Jesuit, René-Robert Cavalier, Sieur de la Salle, and a party of 14 came up around the bottom of the lake in canoes. By then, the Miamis were being displaced by the Potawatomis who farmed in villages in the summer and migrated to winter hunting grounds in the fall. They lived in dome-shaped wigwams or large bark-covered huts. They made maple sugar and enjoyed a bounty of fish and game. During the passenger pigeon migrations, the flocks of the large birds were so thick that they could be felled even with poles and club wielded by men standing on dunes. The Potawatomis were originally friendly. There was some intermarriage with the settlers, but Chief Tecumseh persuaded them to enter the War of 1812 on the side of the British. White man's diseases and liquor had more effect than the war, however, and in the Chicago Treaty of 1833, the Indians ceded all of Berrien County except a few reservations. Not all Indians left, Pocagon, second-ranking Potawatomi chief, a Catholic convert, described as the reality of the noble red man of whom we read, who may have lived near the mouth of the Galen River and had later established a tribal village in Bertram Township, sought and received permission to move his settlement to Cass County. His descendant, by the way, Simon Pokagon, educated at Oberlin, petitioned Lincoln and Grant for payment for lands. As an honored guest at the 1893 World's Fair, Simon was celebrated as internationally known as a writer, poet, and lecturer. Meanwhile, the United States continued its westward expansion. The Territorial Legislature of Michigan created Berrien County on October 29, 1829. By the next year, the federal township and Range System of Land Survey had outlined the section roads that defined inland borders that we know today. Michigan created New Buffalo Township on March 12, 1863, just before it became a state. Five days later, the village of New Buffalo was incorporated. The township included what are now Three Oaks and Chickamauga Townships, until they were split off in 1856. The city of New Buffalo came into being because of a violent October storm in 1834, two years earlier, when Captain Wessel D. Whitaker grounded his schooner, called Post Boy, in the mouth of a small stream called State Creek, near the present village of Grand Beach. The ship was destroyed, but Captain and crew survived the disaster and walked to Michigan City, where there were taverns that could provide food and shelter. There, Whitaker hired a rig and headed north for St. Joseph to report the ship's losses to its underwriters. On his way up the coast, he was struck by the advantages and the beauty of the spot where the Galen River passed through Lake Potawatomi into Lake Michigan. Now, Lake Potawatomi has since been drained by the sawmills over the years and was, by varying accounts, about two miles long and a half mile wide and up to 90 feet deep or four miles long by a uh, mile wide and 14 feet deep. It is now just a lazy bend in the river. After completing his business in St. Joe and paying off his crew, he went by stagecoach to the land office in Kalamazoo, where he made arrangements to acquire a large tract of land around the harbor mouth. He then returned home to Buffalo, New York, where he sold half his interest to his employers, Jacob Barker and Nelson Willard for $13,000. They named their new city New Buffalo. Spring found Whitaker back and ready to begin settlement. The first building was a 15 by 14 foot log cabin at the corner of Whitaker and Merchant Streets, where the first four settlers, Wessel Whitaker, Henry Bishop, Freeman Claw, and William Hammond slept on pine boughs laid across one side of the room. Soon there was a Whitaker and Company's waterfront warehouse and a store, a lodging house for travelers, and a sawmill. You've heard me mention in previous podcast episodes, usually the first mill any community built was a sawmill, and thus was the case in New Buffalo. The first woman to arrive was a Mrs. Eber Knight, whose descendants still live in New Buffalo today. A land boom was in progress in the Northwest Territories, and more settlers, many of them Whitaker's relatives, followed him there until development was stalled by the National Panic of 1837. Transportation was a problem. The road from La Porte was described as villainous out of one mud hole into another the whole distance. A lakeshore road had been authorized in 1833 from St. Joseph to Indiana, but only the section south of New Buffalo was passable. Over it, a stagecoach ran a mail run. So there was a stagecoach running south of New Buffalo to Chicago, but the road from New Buffalo all the way to St. Joe, was basically a muddy mess. So harbor improvement was a priority. After a favorable army survey in 1838, the government built a lighthouse in 1839. Unfortunately, that lighthouse lasted only until about 1857, when it became the first local victim to the state's shifting shoreline. But now there was a third alternative. Railroads had begun to stitch the country together with iron thread. The Michigan Central Railroad was chartered in 1846 to build a line to a point near the Indiana boundary and Lake Michigan. New Buffalo was chosen as the end of the line, so passengers and freight would have to shift to another means to continue on to Chicago or other points west. So good times seemed really inevitable for New Buffalo, and it was for a short time, and they were indeed good times. The final tracks were laid in the spring of 1849. 200 people celebrated the arrival of the first train. That year, over 100,000 people rode the Michigan Central. Many stopped in New Buffalo for a few hours, or if the weather was bad enough, a few days. New hotels, restaurants, and stores thrived. The railroad built piers and improved the harbor, and three new Ward Line steamers, the Pacific, the Traveler, and the Cleveland, ran to Chicago and to Milwaukee. So the railroad continued All the way to New Buffalo, and then the railroad built piers and established the steamer lines so they could continue shipping freight all the way to Chicago across the water, which is really a fascinating combination of uh, transportation. And then we have sidetracks appeared every mile or so along the railroad, opening up the lumber industry. Logs were picked up on the sidings and transferred to ships headed across the lake. In 1850, one steamship company alone purchased 7,000 cords of wood. In 1859, only four years later, the Michigan Central extended its line through Indiana to Chicago, and then the passengers didn't stop. The boom was over, the town lost half its size, And some buildings went by flat car to Three Oaks, where the lumber industry would thrive for another 20 years. So the town suffered when that new extension from New Buffalo all the way to Chicago through Indiana was created because it was no longer a reason to stop in New Buffalo. And so some of the solutions that some of the merchants did was to have their buildings put on freight cars and taken all the way to uh, Three Oaks, which is a neighboring town. Uh, Very interesting timeline and history there when that happened in 1853. But land had been cleared, improvements made, and soon there was a new group of settlers that arrived in the New Buffalo area. German mostly. Uh, Wilson Road was called Germany Road. J.M. Patton published the first newspaper. It was called The Vindicator in 1856. J.V. Phillips was the first lawyer, serving for nearly 40 years. And churches were built, a Catholic church in 1858, a Methodist in 1861, and a German Evangelical in 1862. The First Baptist Church was established in a former dance hall at the corner of Merchant and Barton Streets. For decades, it had the largest congregation and church building. The Berrien County Medical Association was formed in New Buffalo in 1870. And the roads opened to the north as well to the south, with as many as 16 coaches a day between New Buffalo and St. Joe. In 1870, this route was covered by a new railroad line, which was required to have a stop every five miles for the benefit of the farmers. Next to the last stop was Town Line, which quickly acquired a post office and became Union Pier. By 1880, the township's population was 1,198 people, an increase of 376 people, or 46% over the previous 20 years. Just 50 miles across the lake, Chicago had been incorporated the year before Captain Whitaker's uh, fortuitous storm. In 1890, it was a colossus preparing to celebrate itself in the Columbian Exposition. New Buffalo could not compete with its harbor, its industry, or its size, but it could benefit nonetheless. Isaac O. Smith farmed 165 acres on the lakefront between New Buffalo and Union Pier. In 1893, he built a resort hotel for travelers on their way to the exposition. It had 10 rooms, a ballroom, and 10 cottages. Part of the foundations of the hotel and one of the cottages, much modified, still remains today. Thus began the parade of visitors from the West. In 1903, the Congregational Assembly for Bible Students of the Middle West built a summer camp called Pottawatomie Point. Camp Sokol opened in 1905 and is still an important part of the township. The YMCA opened its Forest Beach Camp. Other youth facilities included the Jewish Camp Tell High and the Chicago Commons Camp for Boys. Floyd R. Perkins bought 600 acres of dunes and woodlands for a shooting preserve and then expanded it to form the Grand Beach Company. By 1911, there was almost 50 cottages, a nine-hole golf course, and a train stop. Ten years later, the majestic Golfmore Hotel opened with 175 rooms, dining, dancing, tennis, horseback riding, swimming, 27 holes of golf, and a ski jump. Its burning in 1939 returned Grand Beach to the residential community it is today. The railroad became a significant employer in 1921 when the Pier Marquette line put in new tracks, coaling stations, a roundhouse, and a 56-room hotel. Local industry, a pickle factory, and a glass factory, and local farms continued and prospered. But the growth industry was the people from across the lake. In the 1920s, families rented small, uninsulated cabins for a week or a month, arriving first by train and then by motor car on US-12. Even in the depression of the 1930s, they came if they could afford it. A tourist information center was opened in 1934. After a hiatus for the Second World War, many of the renters were moving to the suburbs. The city dwellers who did not come wanted more. They were repeat visitors and tended to buy as well as rent. The cabins gradually gave way to winterized second homes, which seemed to become larger and more elaborate each year. Marina facilities started when Harold and William Gull offered two boats for rent and live bait in 1947 and grew into today's dredged harbor with moorings on both sides of the bridge. The village became a home-rule city in 1965. While industry continues to grow slowly, plastic injection molds, steel castings, and wooden trusses, and farms continue to operate from soybeans to llama ranching, the new businesses are restaurants, antique stores, bed-and-breakfasts, and even hotels. Partly by plan and partly by geography, New Buffalo Township is still as this 1928 arch proudly proclaimed the gateway to Michigan. And that's the end of that article. And it was a very fascinating tour to really look at that timeline and the work that they, w- they put into it. And this was put together by the New Buffalo Township. And they did a wonderful job of presenting the history and the timeline of this area. And it's kind of fascinating that New Buffalo came into being because a captain wrecked his ship and had to take another um, schooner or ship back up to St. Joe and happened to pass by that section of land where the the river was coming into the um, Lake Michigan and saw the potential for the area and the beauty of the spot and said he's really got to look into this and... Uh, try to acquire the land. And even his name is still on one of the streets there today. And so it's a very fascinating history of that uh, section of the state. Now, I was curious as to who some of the famous people, if if there were any, From New Buffalo were, and I came across a a couple of names to tell you about. So, there were two notable people that were mentioned as coming from New Buffalo or related to New Buffalo in some way Roger Brown, who was born in 1941 and he passed away in 1997, and he was an American artist and painter. Often he was associated with the Chicago imaginist groups. He was internationally known for his distinctive painting style and shrewd social commentaries on politics, religion, and art. In his early life, he was actually born in Alabama, and he described his formative years as a creative child, and he ultimately attended art school at the Art Institute of Chicago from 1962 to 1970. And he was influenced by a lot of the pre-Renaissance Italian art, surrealism, American artists like Edward Hooper, Grant Wood and Georgia O'Keeffe, and also a lot of tribal art from a lot of different cultures. And over the years, he had a lot of his work represented in both Chicago and New York, and he became nationally and internationally known for his artwork. He had a home in Chicago, but he also, in 1979, purchased some land in New Buffalo, and he built a house. And he Had his home in New Buffalo from about 1980 onward, and he traveled back between New Buffalo and Chicago. Um, He liked the dunes and the landscape of New Buffalo. And in later years, he also had a home in California. And his home in New Buffalo provided him with a lot of source of inspiration, and he loved the nature around the area and the changing landscape from winter to summer to fall and the spring. And so he just really loved the area of New Buffalo. And so he's one of the famous people from the New Buffalo area. But he wasn't born there. The other notable person associated with New Buffalo also was not born there. His name was Laurent Novikov, and he was born in 1888 and he passed away in 1956. He was a Russian ballet dancer who became a citizen of the United States in 1939. He graduated from Moscow's Bolshei Ballet School in 1906. And over the years, he performed in a lot of different companies over in Russia. And he became a ballet master at the Chicago Opera from 1929 to 1933. He also danced at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City from 1941 to 1945. And he opened up a ballet school in New Buffalo, Michigan, and he remained there until he passed away in 1956. So he was uh, quite a a renowned dancer in his time and um, in the world of ballet dancing. So that's um, the story of New Buffalo, Michigan, it's a beautiful little community. I've been there a few different times. Some of my work has taken me over there. And it's quite a port city for a lot of boating. They have uh, several piers there now. And it's a, they've got a little quaint, beautiful downtown with some great-looking restaurants. And they've done a good job of trying to preserve the old historic area of the buildings. And it's um, it's a nice little town to visit. I think if you were looking for a cottage to rent or something like that for tourists, spot that was a little different along the Lake Michigan shoreline, you couldn't really go wrong with New Buffalo. I mean, just there's a lot of shops in downtown area. Now, I don't know how well they've survived in the last few years with all the shutdowns, because a lot of towns did suffer a lot with losing a lot of businesses and some of the things that happened here in Michigan in the last few years. However, my last visit to New Buffalo was about two years ago, and they seem to be doing fairly well. Um, It seemed to be weathering that storm. So I would definitely check it out if you're looking for an interesting, unique place to go visit. It's not a very big community, but it does have some great shorelines. And there's a uh, there's beachfront nearby, and there's some public beaches in the area. So definitely... Put New Buffalo on your list, especially if you're going to make a drive to Chicago from anywhere in southwest Michigan. You know, stop there and have lunch in the downtown area. It's a great little place. So that's going to do it for today's journey through history looking at New Buffalo, Michigan. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And I do get several messages every week from people that listen to the show. And I appreciate all of them. And I try to get back with as many people as I can. Uh, If you have suggestions for people that you think might be a great guest on one of my interviews on Sundays, uh, be sure to reach out to me through that website, michaeldelaware.com, and give me some contact information for them or explain who you recommend. I've had a few people recommend some guests through that website and it's uh it's been great I've, I've made contact with people that i otherwise would not have found on my own and it's really uh greatly appreciated and so until next time when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore yet another wonderful tale and chapter from southwest michigan's history thanks for listening